Smith, who wrote uh, "The Sky Is Yours." Uh, how how are you? How's it going? It's been it's been a lot of fun uh, seeing the book out in the world. I just uh, right before we started talking, I got um, a text from a friend who spotted it on the new books table at the Barnes and Noble in Union Square. So that's always nice. nice to, yeah, have that front of the store placement. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a great time. Cool. And um, so. How about we start with a with a quick summary of this one? Because there's a there's a I think it's fair to say there's a quite a bit going on, so I don't want to leave anyone behind. So let's uh, let me give me the the jacket copy. Oh, would you like me to read the jacket copy? Oh, Sorry, no, I don't yeah. don't read the jacket oh. copy. Just uh, tell tell me, just kind of summarize it for people who well haven't um seen it yet. so it's set. It's set in a sort of parallel universe version of New York City. It's a city called Empire Island um, that, you know, bears some some pronounced similarities with New York. Um, and it's sort of futuristic. There are things like flying cars, holograms, um, you know, a lot of genetic engineering stuff that's, that's a little bit more advanced than our world. But it's kind of like a five minutes in the future sort of futuristic. It's not like... A, yeah, it's not imagining a completely different um, setup in terms of technology. Um, people still have things that are kind of like tablets that are called looky glasses in the book. And uh, yeah, so um, there, you know, there are video games and uh, tube, tube shows that are sort of like, you know, YouTube shows or reality TV in our world. Um, and so amidst all of this, uh, 50 years before the start of the book, these two dragons rose from the waters of Nereid Bay, which is just outside of the city. And uh, ever since, they have been circling and lighting a flame um, parts of the city. Um, and so it's really about kind of the way that the culture of this place has transformed um, because of the dragons. And then um, the story centers on three young protagonists who are in their late teens. Um, there's Duncan Ripple, who is the former star of one of those tube shows that I mentioned. It's like a reality program about his life. He's the spoiled scion of the city's last dynasty, which is a kind of Trump-like family called the Ripples. Um, he, Because he flunked out of school, his father has decided that in order to manage the family fortune, he has to get married, and he's arranged a marriage with this young woman the Baroness Swan Lenore Dahlberg, who's very bookish and grew up in a sort of suburban enclave outside of the city. Um, and then, but before the marriage can happen, um, Duncan Ripple crashes his uh, flying car on this island of garbage outside of the city because he comes into contact with one of the dragons in the sky and meets this uh, feral young woman named Abby who has a mysterious past and she's been living on the garbage island as long as she can remember. So the story sort of starts out with this uh, marriage plot love triangle. And then when those three characters are sort of forced to make their way in the larger city, we get kind of a cross section of what's been going on in that world and how it ends up affecting all of their lives. So that's the kind of long elevator pitch version. Cool. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I think some of the, the best characters or the ones that resonated a lot with me were, were some of the ones you, you haven't mentioned there. Yeah. Uh, not that the ones you mentioned aren't good characters, they are. And we'll, we'll get to them in a minute. But uh, yeah, totally. Uh, Duncan's Uncle Osmond was. I love Osmond. Really, He's yeah, probably my favorite very, character, too. Yeah. yeah, he was a very, very cool character. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Sharky 
I'm pronouncing that right, right? Yeah, that's right. Sharky. That that E threw me for some reason. (laughs) But um, yeah, he's a kind of a a crime boss drug dealer in a condemned part of the city where criminals live and it's all very escaped from New York. Yeah, I uh, I probably should have mentioned that too, that um, in addition to the sort of other other elements of the city that I was discussing, there's this uh, prison colony in the lower reaches of the city called Torchtown. And that's the area that uh, coincidentally or not, where you know the reader is at least not initially sure, but it's the the hardest hit by the dragons, this sort of walled off prison colony. So it's constantly on fire, and it's become nicknamed Torchtown for that reason. And that's where Sharky lives. Yeah. Does that um, does that map onto any part of actual New York? It's not like Torchtown is Brooklyn or something. No, I mean, um, you know, I was sort of fascinated by the idea of prison colonies. There, There's actually one, I think, in, in Scandinavia somewhere where they tried to do the thing that I describe in the book. Um, so in the book, you know, I initially say that the prison colony started out as this way to rehabilitate criminals, to create this sort of miniature city within the city that's that's walled off, but where, you know, the criminals can, like, set up businesses and, like, um, you know, have their own apartments and kind of go about normal lives. Um and that's actually something that has existed in the world, and I found that really fascinating. Um, and then in terms of, like, the geography of New York, if I had to say it kind of reminds me of a part of New York, I'd say maybe, like, the East Village or Lower East Side, but it doesn't map really specifically onto a geographic area. Yeah, it was more just the conceit of that prison colony okay. being its own sort of separate society within the within the larger city. Cool. And... Uh... And I'm glad you mentioned uh, that the the Ripple family are Trump-like because that's uh, <laughs> that's one that kind of came up, especially with um, Duncan's mother, who's a very um, she's <laughs> a, a foreign-born kind of model slash almost concubine for um, yeah. rich men. And uh, yeah, I don't want to get sued, but she maps quite well onto a, a certain first lady. Yeah, and. It's uh, funny. Because I thought about, like, you know, I knew of Donald Trump from things like The Apprentice and sort of just him being this uh, media impresario, like, um, you know, back in the 90s and stuff. And, um, yeah, like, when I started writing this book, it was not a serious consideration that he would, you know, even even really, like, you know, get, like, the Republican nomination, let alone actually become president. So it was just sort of an uncanny thing of, like, art imitating life that, that this family became so prominent who I had kind of thought about in early stages of creating those characters. Uh, what about uh, Duncan himself? Is he based on, in part or in whole, on like any actual reality TV guys? I mean, I thought a lot about people like, um, you know, like Justin Bieber. Um, I remember, you know, just some of some of his antics for a while there were just like so incredibly tone deaf, and you really got the sense that this was a person who had grown up in a bubble and just didn't have any idea how he would be perceived by people outside of that, the sense of sort of entitlement and being the center of the universe. Um, And I also thought a little bit about also relating to politics in the 2008 presidential election. Um, Levi Johnston, like, was this guy who was the, you know, Bristol Palin, the daughter of Sarah Palin. Um, He was like, yeah, he was the the father of her like unborn unborn child, and um, was sort of thrust into the media spotlight. And at first was a little bit shy, and then took to it in this kind of like gross and hilarious way. And so I was sort of fascinated by like you know these young men who are kind of thrown into the spotlight 
and have no filter and no real conception that like that there's any kind of accountability for these personas that they're creating. So yeah, but um, yeah, but there's not like one model. It was more just the phenomenon of that that I was I was fascinated by. Yeah, I mean, um, I know you wouldn't have at all intended this uh, when you wrote it, but I was pretty much like ten pages in of write, reading about this guy. I was thinking of uh, that uh, Logan Paul guy who's um, on YouTube recently. People have mentioned him, and I actually, since I am no longer researching characters like this for the book, like, I don't even really know who that is. Like, I, I've heard the name just because people have said, oh, he's sort of a Logan Paul type about Ripple, but that's, mm. yeah. yeah. What is, well, yeah, what is Logan Paul, like, known for? Like, um, yeah. Well, I mean, the weird thing is, if you're, like, even, like, a late teenager onwards, you would have never heard of this guy before about a month ago. Yeah. So he was yeah. uh, this massive YouTube star huge and like millions of dollars every week um for appealing mainly to kind of small children like <laughs> eight to ten year olds whoa and these guys um he's not like a children's entertainer at all he's more um he's like uh he's like does like these jackass style stunts where he'll oh. just like set his friend's couch on fire in the middle of the street and laugh at it and uh He's got okay. a young, younger brother named Jake Paul, who's even worse and smaller. And um, yeah, he was—he only really came to anyone's notice because he went to the um, Akoigahara Suicide Forest in Japan and photo oh, wow. and f filmed himself looking at a dead body. And um, then I'm just shaking my head here, you know. <laughs> and then afterwards, when he'd already been kind of. Um, his advertising dollars had been taken away by YouTube, he decided to release a video of himself uh, tasering a dead rat and um, I think do something horrible to a dead uh, bird. I well, so I would say that like Duncan has many, many deep and pronounced character flaws, but at least he never harms animals. So um... yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he's a pretty bad misogynist, but he wouldn't he bad... yeah, do any of this. And he does actually seem affected by the deaths of others like very much so at the end of the book whereas Logan Paul was kind of laughing about this guy who had uh, been hung in a forest oh my god yeah. <laughs> it was uh, That's horrifying. Yeah, but there it was is very 2018 yeah no kidding yeah there is something really true about I think that there's something about experiencing your own life as a kind of entertainment product for others that creates this really unsettling distance and that was definitely something I was interested in with Ripple's character that he is someone who kind of imagines everything happening on TV until at a certain point he gets a reality check but like um but he's he goes quite a while and you know um without ever running up against that and without ever challenging himself in that way it's like I I don't want to imply that he has that that character doesn't have any kind of accountability because you know or or shouldn't have any kind of accountability just because he was like thrust into the situation it's like you know he's he's ignorant because it's convenient to him until ultimately even he can't hold on to that ignorance so yeah and speaking of lives uh what's what's yours um <laughs> I, we've got a very little brief biographical thing here that says you graduated bennington and mm -hmm. an mfa at columbia and yeah you live in new york so, so what, what else yeah. is there um, so, yeah, like I, you know, after graduating from the MFA program at Columbia, I worked in book publishing for a few years. I worked for um, a few different literary agencies. That was that was my main thing. Um, 
so I was like an editorial assistant and, um, you know, would read slush and manuscripts and help with, um, you know, all of the daily administrative stuff of running an agency. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It, what, was you, the, what was the you, worst you, slush you got? Worst was, was the one that uh, like hugely stands out? Cause I got like 10, but, uh, oh, man. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that I remember when I was interning actually at a literary agency is getting this really bizarre memoir from this guy who was claiming he was blowing the lid off of this conspiracy theory. Um, and it was something where he believed that, I think it was that the CIA was cutting holes in his clothes. And as you put it, you slowly realize that this guy, I mean, it was really terribly sad, actually, but like that he was seriously mentally ill. But it was a case where I had never really encountered an unreliable narrator in real life. Like, it was such a surprise. So that's one that definitely sticks in my memory. Um, I'm trying to think of other novels and stuff. I mean, there were just definitely a lot of cases where someone would seem like they had a good conceit and then they just would, you know, not focus on the part of it that was interesting at all. So that was always like the frustrating thing when you request something and you're excited about it and you go into it wanting to like it and then the writer keeps getting in their own way. I mean, I definitely learned a ton about writing from the experience of reading Slush. Mm, yeah. What I, about you? What was your worst ever Slush experience? Uh, mine was another sad one, actually. It was... um generic middle-of-the-road uh, teenage vampire novel which were popular at the time but mm -hmm. someone had quit their job as a brain surgeon to write it and I looked them up and they were apparently very talented and um, had decided not to uh, pursue that and instead write um, like wow. something about like 25% as good as Twilight <laughs> yeah I mean um, maybe they just needed a break you know I think sometimes people with like high pressure jobs like that get burned out and they sort of think well this creative outlet that I have is so much more fulfilling and then you know once they sort of get into the slog of rejections and stuff maybe they'll you know <laughs> figure out that's not the best path but uh, yeah. I think my form letter to them was very um was very even-handed I hope yeah yeah and that's like such a hard thing too I mean I think part of the reason that I ultimately ended up not wanting to work in publishing long term was that you know, when you're in that position of doling out the rejections and then you're also getting them, like, it's like, it, it, it can feel so depressing because you kind of are mm -hmm. like, yeah, you just become kind of hyper aware of, um, of all the ways that something can fail. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was not my favorite thing about working at agencies. I also just realized it's so hard to be a successful agent. Like, it seems like it's kind of just as much work as getting success as a writer. But then, you know, for me, since actually creating fiction was such an important part of that process like I I was like I'm not going to do this level of work and have this level of emotional investment if it's not even my writing like you know it's just too hard so that was kind of part of why I ended up uh, going in a different direction but yeah so did you just were you doing it just in your spare time or did you take time off to, to write Sky is Yours and did you have I, any like false starts or yeah I totally Oh man, it was a very long process. I guess I started writing it in around like 2009 and then I didn't sell the book until 2015. Um, so end of 2015. So that was like a long process. That was like, you know, that's six years of working on the book. Um, I definitely, so in terms of the first part of that question, like, um, you know, did I take time off or um, at first for like, 
a chunk of that time I was working at one agency full time and I was really like, it was a situation where I was even starting to take on some of my own clients and then I kind of just really burned out on it and I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this as, as my main career, but that was what I had experience in. So I left that job without really having a plan and then I ended up pretty quickly getting another part-time job at a different agency and so for a little while there I was just working like part-time and working on this book um, but then I ended up supplementing that um, first with I got this part-time job at a yeah I got a part-time job as a writing tutor at a community college here in New York and then I ended up realizing, you know, I really just want to completely leave the agenting world period. And so I ended up um, getting a second part-time job working at this public relations magazine. So it was sort of like this thing where, you know, there was a brief time where I was just working part-time, but usually I was balancing like a couple of part-time jobs, like, and also working on this book. Um, yeah. So basically I just would write it on, you know, nights, weekends, I've never really been a morning person, so I generally didn't do the thing that so many disciplined writers do of getting up at 6 a.m. and working on it every day, but I know that that's something that a lot of people do to balance it with their career. Um, yeah, and then it's, it's only been very recently, like um, in the last year, that I've been kind of doing the writing thing closer to full-time, and then I'm also teaching a couple of classes, so yeah, um, yeah. And um, I haven't uh, Googled it, but did you, were you publishing a short fiction before you did um, Sky's Yours, or did you just go straight into a novel? I'm really like mostly a long form kind of writer. Um, I actually I had this uh, shorter novel published by a small Canadian press back in 2013. So The Sky Is Yours is my my American debut um, or my U.S. debut. But um, yeah, what, I, what, I was, uh, what was that called? Uh, Golden Land Past Dark, which it's not something that I'm, you know, tremendously enthusiastic about at this point. Like, I feel like I just only can see the flaws in it. Um, but yeah, so, you know, but it was it was a great, like, learning experience writing that and sort of trying to figure out how to hold together a large scale narrative. And then with this book, um, you know, I learned from that experience. And I was, I think, a lot more ambitious, both in terms of the sort of scope of the project and then also like the subject matter. I tried to like, you know, have it satirize a lot of stuff about our world, even though it's in this fantastical place. But I also kind of committed myself to world building in a way that I hadn't before. Um, yeah. But no, I, I'm not really a big short fiction writer. And um, that's something that I kind of I kind of wish I could do because it would be great to finish things more often. But yeah. Hey, so this is a song bit. And I'm going to play you a recommendation I got from someone uh, who I know from the online. Uh, JC, uh, I think it's Rhea. JC Rhea um, is a art director, designer, author. Uh, she did the logo for Metal Bandcamp Gift Club. And she's a pretty cool, cool person from the online. Um, one really cool thing she's done is a year-end list but she redesigns the covers for all the various albums and the um, the art style I use for this podcast is based on that, on her um, designs, but she's an actual legit graphic designer and so legit too, because these are amazing. Um, got them for a ton of different amazing albums and all done in that kind of like 
tropical style. It's great. And um, yeah, she's done a ton of these. They're all really brilliant. Uh, you can go to her website, uh, kvlt.co, and she recommended online a band I'd never heard of before. They're called Coffin Saw. They're out of New York. I think it's just the one guy. One release, uh, Vile Gut Hell. Nice. And um, it's it's death metal, but oh god. Yeah, it's ugly stuff. This is nasty. You're not going to like this at all. Ah, no one's going to like this. I like it. JC obviously likes it to have recommended it to me, but ah, ugh. You born normies at home? No, you're going to need to skip ahead. Uh, this is their song uh, Patient Zero. It's fifth track off uh, Vile Gut Hell by Coffin Saw. to what you were just uh, put a song talking about there which was uh, the themes and the satire and what you kind of set out to to do with this one so I mean genre wise it's kind of all over the place and that's good because uh, another thing I learned from Slush is that when you set out to be just a genre writer you end up writing really bad novels mm-hmm. um, but there's a lot of um, kind of comparisons to well, uh, coming of age, adventure novels, science fiction, mm-hmm. and it is kind of all over, kind of all over the map, but in a really good way. Um, yeah. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
it's a uh, yeah it is it is genreless basically would you would you say it is without genre well i mean i'm really interested in genre so i have lots of thoughts about this i mean like one thing is that i really think that one of the reasons that genres have sort of coalesced the way that they have is because they they kind of reliably encode something about the human experience. So, um, you know, when you read like a horror novel, like that kind of captures something that's this uh, this really visceral human emotion that that you know that people respond to. Or when you write a romance novel, it's similarly, or a mystery novel, um, you know, it, it captures it captures a feeling. It kind of delivers a feeling to you. And so I was really interested in using genre as metaphor. So if I wanted to sort of capture a certain feeling for a part of the book, I wanted to use a genre that delivered that. Um, Hmm. So I didn't want to just reference genres. I wanted to actually do them. So I sort of thought of the book as modular in a way, like where like the first uh, third of it really is this marriage plot. And I tried to really do a marriage plot and have it feel like a marriage plot. And sort of when you're getting to the end of that arc, then we transition into like a very different part of the novel where there, it, you know, there is sort of like a, um, you know, there's kind of this, this training story with, with ripple where he's like becoming a fireman and it's kind of like, you know, um, almost like a sports movie or something where there's like the training montage, there's the character who's the coach, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I wanted it to have that sort of feeling. Then I saw it kind of almost as like a, almost like a Kung Fu movie. Yeah, totally. Exactly. That's exactly the kind of thing I was going for. And then, like, yeah, with Swanee, she's in a gothic romance. So she, you know, moves into this, uh, you know, moves into this new space in Torchtown with that character Sharky that you mentioned before. He has a lot of dark secrets that she doesn't know about. There's even, like, you know, the locked room in the house. Um, she reads a vampire novel that seems to have some curious echoes with her current situation. So I really wanted, you know, to sort of do the gothic romance. And then Abby is having sort of, um, you know, kind of the Joseph Campbell quest narrative where she's been, you know, called from her garbage island where she was living in isolation into this new world that's, that's peopled with a lot of things she's been taught to be afraid of and she has to kind of discover her destiny in that place. So I really wanted to... Um, yeah, like I, I, I wanted to take those genres seriously and try to understand the techniques that they use and sort of use them as tools in service of maybe a larger aim, which is, you know, the book as a whole is up to maybe something different than any one of those stories alone, I hope. Yeah, I, I like that idea of genres as a, as a tool and serve something to be beholden to. And, um... Yeah. That's something I feel really committed to in my work going forward. Like, I feel like that's something I kind of figured out with this project. And I hope I'm able to to try that in different ways in, in future novels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the dragons themselves, they're going to be a pretty uh, big... Um, they make an impact in this book, to say the least. And um, what Thanks. did you... Uh, what did you see them... What did you personally see them representing in, in the novel? And what was their kind of function? Well, one of the things that I was really interested in about dragons as a symbol is that they, um, they're kind of so overloaded with meanings, you know? So in, um, you know, the sort of St. George versus the dragon or like the, you know, the Tolkien like paradigm, uh, you know, dragons sort of represent one thing. They tend to represent like greed and, um, and this sort of foe to be defeated. Um, sometimes they, they represent the devil. Um, but then like, you know, in Asian cultures, they, they often represent like luck and royalty and stuff like that. 
Um, and then also in kids lit, like um, you often have stories about like a misunderstood monster, like a you know a dragon who everybody says this is like a beast that we have to kill, but the one child with like the wisdom of childhood is able to see no, there's you know they're actually a friend, they're like misunderstood, and um, so with all of those associations and more, I kind of you know I was also interested in the idea of um, the dragon not to give away plot stuff, but like that the dragon is something that we associate with mythology and the past, but the possibility that it might sort of arise from, you know, from the Anthropocene. Um, so I was really interested in making the dragons kind of this, like this, this overloaded symbol that you can never completely reduce that. Um, yeah, that kind of holds on to all of those meanings and is contradictory in a lot of ways. Um, and is kind of therefore unknowable. Um, one thing my my agent said when he first started representing me was that he really liked that the the dragons had this almost Lovecraftian nature, and I I was you know hadn't really thought about it like that, but I really really loved that he made that comparison because it showed that he understood that like I mean I don't intend for them to be horrifying so much as um yeah as unknowable and kind of awesome and terrible at the same time you know but um. But yeah, I like that idea of them being kind of this four-dimensional object that the human mind can't quite wrap around. I'm actually someone who has a tattoo of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's face on my arm. So uh, <laughs> it was nice. before it was before I discovered he was really, really racist. Like, oh yeah, totally. Just, utterly. One of his poems. Um, yeah, just don't go there. But. Uh, oh no, so totally. Really... And I think, I think that that's one of the really interesting things that's happened with Lovecraft recently like um you know people like i don't know if you've read the ballad of black tom by victor laval but I really oh god want it's to because uh if i wasn't doing this like thing of having to read a new release every week i'd i'd go back to that one because I, I really want to read that one it's got like everything i like in it but uh yeah he, he's so brilliant i just love all of uh all of victor's stuff he's he's fantastic and um i think that that's just such an interesting engagement i think it's actually dedicated to hp lovecraft with all my conflicted feelings or mm. something the, de the dedication is something like that and he really captures both like uh yeah both what is enduring and also um completely repugnant about lovecraft's legacy in that in that novella so yeah check it out <laughs> one day um <laughs> yeah. i'll take a break but uh yeah i, I it's weird i didn't i didn't go to Lovecraft when I was thinking of these uh, these dragons mm -hmm. um, I didn't even go to the more obvious places like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones yeah. they seemed uh, they, yeah they seemed to be very singular and very um, the way you describe them as being damaged and kind of almost rotten and covered in barnacles and frills yeah. and it's it's not something we, we see of dragons very often they're often majestic you know, like when Smaug arrives he's covered in gold and he's yeah. this amazing thing when uh, the dragons arrive in Game of Thrones, it's like this massive moment, and they're amazing. Mm -hmm. um, then it lasts oh. for another eight seasons, and it's rubbish. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they were very, um, yeah, they were a different take on dragons. That, and it worked. And it, you realize at the end of the book why they're like that, and it's it's yeah. interesting. And they're almost uh, Godzilla-like. And yeah, kind of definitely. Ways. 
I'm, I'm actually, I have not always been a huge, well, I'm, I'm not a huge Godzilla fan now, but I, I've not always been super aware of Godzilla, but actually a, a friend of mine, another writer in New York, uh, Nicholas Kaufman, um, he, uh, he's a big fan of like all of the Godzilla movies and stuff. And I've ended up seeing some of them because of, because of him. And it's like, it is interesting. Like I, that was not a conscious influence, but I think that the sort of legacy of a monster destroying a city like you know you you can't help but think of godzilla mm. so yeah I don't, I don't, the diff, big difference is godzilla coming out of the waves is this single event he comes out mecha godzilla beats him up he goes back yeah but these dragons are forever potentially right. and yeah, um for 50 sort of... years people's entire lives have been under these dragon sh shadows very literally yeah and it's impacted every part of uh Empire cities, um, everyone's lives, and it, interesting you mentioned like the Anthropocene. So for people mm -hmm. who don't know, uh, the human er error, yeah, in, no pun intended, is were they a kind of environmental metaphor, um, or can they be can be be read as that? Yeah, I definitely intend for that to be another one of those kind of layered meanings of the dragons, like. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm also a fan of Jeff Vandermeer's work, um, and I can definitely see some, you know, like, I think it's really, it, it was really fascinating that his novel Born came out shortly before this, um, like, right after I turned in my final draft of this novel, I picked up a copy of that, and um, I was like, wow, it's really amazing, because that's also a novel where, you know, giant monsters are battling over a city at the end, um, you know, there's a, a, a giant flying bear that's the sort of mm -hmm. a diseased thing in in the city of that novel um and yeah and obviously you know people call him the weird emerson or the weird thoreau so you know his concerns are are even more environmental than mine are but yeah i was really interested in the idea of i guess of environmental stuff almost in a more metaphorical way um the idea of the city sort of has these children um you know that all kind of have parts of parts of the good and parts of the worst that the city has to offer. So, you know, if you think about like the three protagonists of the novel, they all kind of like spring from the city in different ways. They reflect different aspects of it. And the dragons also reflect both like kind of the good and the bad, you know. Um, I also refer to like the, the landfill island as a human nature preserve. And I kind of feel like what we throw away like ends up revealing so much about who we are and the dragons kind of kind of are, are something that has been thrown away but then comes back um yeah so yeah so I definitely I, I definitely did think that environmental destruction was part of the the legacy and inheritance that these characters have but it's just one part of that sure and um sorry one second here it's uh described a couple of places both on uh by Paul Tremblay on the black back cover and in the jacket as dystopian mm -hmm. uh, and dystopias have been I wouldn't say they're in fashion because they've been around they've been a big thing way too long to be truly to be a trend you know yeah yeah they've uh, and I don't just mean like 1984 Brave New World stuff I mean like in the last 10-20 years there's been a lot of dystopian fiction absolutely and, it's a uh, genre at this point I think yeah, yeah especially in YA and mm -hmm. um even in adult books and um what what are yeah. you 
Uh, Sorry, my dog is barking at. Stop no, that. No problem. I'm I'm like literally under a sewer pipe at the moment. <laughs> so no amount of dog barking can be worse than the things I'm hearing. Okay. I, I share a sewer pipe with a, a restaurant, so there's actual like human <laughs> human waste flying above like, my head about two feet. That's horrifying. Wow. Yeah. Um yeah. But, but, uh, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> no problem. Um, so yeah, the what are your what are your thoughts about dystopia as a genre? And because I guess it is a genre now, and um, and where what we can do with dystopia nowadays now that we're actually living in one. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, which is pretty horrifying. Um, yeah, like I, I definitely have thought a lot about that. I, I think that. Um, you know, I just wrote a, a short piece uh, recently about unlikable characters, and one of the things I, I talked about in that was that, um, you know, to the extent that the characters in this novel are unlikable, and I certainly intend for some of them to be, I, I'm interested, I find it frustrating when I read a dystopia and we have a main character who seems to share the values of the reader outside of the dystopia, yeah. And then we, you know, or not even just the values of the reader, but the sort of idealized values of the reader outside of the dystopia. And then um, we have like a big bad who represents a kind of like inhuman adherence to an evil ideology, right? Because dystopias, to me, a dystopia is a society that's been made by people and that kind of um, magnifies and doubles down on their flaws, but it doesn't invent them. And, and it's also kind of inside of your head, right? Like the society that you live in, it gives you it gives you the material, you know, with which you make your dreams. It gives you the language with which you express your emotions. It gives you uh, you know, it gives you models and cautionary tales and all of that stuff comes out of the materials of the culture that you're in. So, to me, the direction I kind of wanted to go with the dystopian elements um was that I wanted it to both reflect and shape human character but I also didn't want to eliminate the potential for free will and for people to grow and change you know because I think that that's also possible within a society but I think that like that to me seems like the one most ignored aspect of dystopia is like this is something that's made by people and that makes people um and how do we sort of deal with that in characterization so um yeah and I even like, you know, I'm even kind of explicit with that about, um, I talk about the prison colony, you know, it's sort of created initially with these very idealistic aims of, you know, we'll create the city within the city that sort of rehabilitates criminals. And then ultimately when it gets attacked by the dragons, it's kind of abandoned. And then at a certain point, the, you know, the people in the city outside of the prison colony are afraid to let out prisoners for fear that they'll meet out the justice that that they the you know the people in the main part of the city deserve um and there's something about like dystopias i think often it's not that someone deliberately set out to turn the world into a nightmare but more like a series of bad choices were made and that going back from that seems too hard so I think that that's, that's something that I actually find scarier than than just mm. the idea of one person decides to turn it into the evil empire, you know? Yeah, the, the very uh, 1984 dystopias, which you can't yeah. imagine people sit, sat down around a table saying, okay, what's our ideal society? Uh, it's a boot stamp on a human face forever. <laughs> you know? Exactly, exactly. That's just not, I mean, I actually do really love that book and that was, mm, you know, 
one of my my first favorite novels when I was younger. But like, um, yeah. But but it doesn't really seem like it captures like the sort of domino effect anyway that I was interested in exploring. So yeah. 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 Fun fact: uh, nine, when they surveyed the members of British Parliament on what their favorite, most influential book was, and it, the, mm. 1984 won by a landslide. So interesting. Yeah. Um, and. Britain is one of the most surveilled societies on earth. So I think they didn't get the right lessons from that one. <laughs> they tr they treated it as like an instruction manual, you know. Basically, so. yeah. Um, especially the current government. But no, enough about politics. Um, yeah, it's in I, I haven't actually read your thing about uh, unlikable characters because I was going to be a something I want to talk about because yeah. I'm guessing with that you're pretty almost semi-exclusively referring to Duncan and, and Sharky because they're the to... No, I mean, I really, I feel like every character except possibly Abby is pretty, I mean, I think to different degrees they're unlikable, but I mean, um, yeah, I definitely intended for like, you know, Swanee is, you know, very selfish and self-dramatizing and, um, and I think like, you know, her mother like um, has heroic aspects, but she also has, I mean, like certainly the way that she's treated their family's ha housekeeper who, you know you find out at a certain point was actually intended to be Swanee's tutor, um, you know, or governess, like, um, you know, that that's, that's been abominable on her part. Um, and you know, Duncan's father, um, that's sort of where Duncan learns a lot of his misogyny and, um, and his sort of like attitudes of entitlement about wealth. Like, I, and even someone like Osmond who I love and think is hilarious is an absolutely terrible snob. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I did intend for all of them to reflect negative aspects of the society they were in to one extent or another, but yeah. And yeah, like, like you say, aside from Abby, most of the people have pretty unlikable aspects to them. Stuff that if we met them in real life would probably be like deal breakers. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so, uh, I guess the the most people would consider that to have like more than two thirds of the book be a, uh, from the perspective of and about unlikable people yeah. would be a that would be a deal breaker for when someone comes to read it. Yeah. And but it a it's it's not at, at all. Um, Swanee especially was probably my favorite character in it. Who favorite uh, viewpoint character at least oh thank you and, yeah um, yes and um so how how do you pull that off because it, it could it could go wrong in a billion different ways but it doesn't here and how did you set out to do it and how did you accomplish that well i'm really flattered to hear you say that it worked for you because i i mean i know that that's not something that works for every reader um and that was actually why I wrote that essay about it. That's, that essay is going to be, I think, up tomorrow on um, Signature Reads. So I, I'll send you a link, by the way. Um, okay. But yeah, yeah. like, um, but I mean, I guess that like the thing that I was always interested in with these characters was sort of writing toward empathy, writing toward autobiography, writing toward something I could understand. So I would sort of think, okay, well, you know, what like what's Duncan's you know what's Duncan's father going to be like or what is his mother going to be like and I would kind of like imagine a sort of in a very broad way the type of character this would be and then as I would spend time with that character I would try to figure out like what are the you know what are the sort of human motivations underneath this behavior like um 
even if the character is being selfish and even if they're going about achieving that selfish aim in a way that I wouldn't, you know, morally condone, um, understanding them as people, like, I guess was always really key for me. I actually just watched an interview with Alison Janney talking about her portrayal of Tanya Harding's mother and that new movie that's out now mm-hmm. about Tanya Harding, which mm-hmm. I haven't even, I haven't even seen it yet, but mm-hmm. I really like Alison Janney. And it was just really interesting to hear her talking about like trying to locate something sympathetic in this woman that in a lot of ways was kind of a monster to her daughter. And I, you know, I was thinking I almost kind of take that approach. I sort of imagine not just imagining like what part of this person can I relate to, but trying to sort of put on the mask of that character and almost perform them in the prose. So that's why there are so many different point of view characters. Um, I think that there are like 12 point of view characters in the book total, like where there's at least one section that's from their perspective. And a lot of the time it was because I needed an opportunity to put on that mask and sort of act out like, what is it like to be this person in order to write them in a way that was sympathetic enough to, to be genuinely, hopefully, genuinely funny and or mean or sad or pathetic, you know, but I had to get close enough to them to, like, access that, even if it doesn't really end up, like, uh, you know, making them seem like an aspirational figure in any way. And was this all um, thinking in an armchair to, to get them on the page, or was, did you do some res- a lot of research or method acting or... I mean, I think it's just writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, basically. (laughs) I definitely had, like, I threw, you know, I threw out hundreds of pages in the time that I was writing this book where I would, um, yeah, I would just take a wrong turn somewhere and I would be like, this isn't working, this isn't real. How do I tap into that deeper vein of, of energy and humanity? And I just, you know, I had to just keep thinking, um... Yeah, so it was it was probably like less interesting, but <laughs> and more re- repetitive, like mm-hmm. then. Yeah. So you, yeah. you didn't start out with a with a detailed plan, or what? you just kind of went for it. I kind of developed a plan. Um, I, I wrote. I think I'd written maybe about a hundred pages, and then I was really just hitting a wall and feeling like I had no idea where any of this was going. And I was stuck for a while. And then one night, late at night, I was just like, okay, I I got just, you know, really determined. And I was like, I'm going to sort of bang out a structure for what this whole book is going to look like, you know, and where it's going to end up. And I ended up not really sticking very closely to that at all. But I did have that document that I could kind of say to myself, this is my map. Um, But what I was talking about with like getting closer to the characters, it was more like I would kind of decide, okay, there are certain things that have to happen at some point you know there are certain things that have to happen for the next thing in the plot to occur and I would have trouble sometimes figuring out how to motivate the character properly to get them to do what I needed them to do and sometimes it also turned out that I needed them to do something different than I thought I did you know I had to actually change the story because the character had changed out from under me but yeah cool yeah and um okay so we reaching the end here so let's talk about uh what you're doing next um i mean is uh this are you going to do another book um set in the same universe or are we done with empire city i'm definitely done with it for now um i you know i could imagine in like 10 years or something maybe wanting to go back and do something else with this world 
Um, but right now I feel like I have kind of left it all on the field and I'm, you know, that's pretty much everything I have to say about this world right now. So I'm writing a new novel and it's about, you know, it's, it's set more in our world, but the sort of narrative logic is more dreamlike. It's about this obsessive love affair, um, between this man and this woman that sort of takes them into this heightened and real fantasy space. Um, and I'm, I'm really trying to actually use more one genre in this book. I'm, I'm using a lot of, uh, different kind of noir storylines, but that end up um, getting kind of fractured and recombined in strange ways. So, yeah. So it's like a cubist noir. <laughs> nice. Um, Thanks. Do, you have, yeah. do you have a title? The working title is Parasite Universe, but we'll nice. see. Yeah. Um, I'm if excited. you don't use that uh, title, I'm going to name a band that. So <laughs> can think of a new title. That'd be good. It'd be helpful. Totally. Yeah. Or you can do a concept album that, you know, comes out at the same time as the book and we can work together. So. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. Uh, cool. So, uh, yeah. Um, people listening at home, go and buy this book. It's out on... Uh, I got it from library, so they've actually covered up uh, the thing with a sticker. Yeah, but it it's... came out on January 23rd, so it's, you know, should be available. Um... It's by Hogarth Books in London slash New York, and a audiobook is on Penguin, and do you read the audiobook, or does, do, you, no. do you have an actor? It's just yeah. a very talented uh, woman, Kirsten Potter, and um, she's, yeah, she's terrific, so um, yeah. Definitely, it's a very cool audio rendition. Cool, and uh, yeah, people at home uh, go and read this because it's actually yeah, it is actually really really good. It's me again. I mean that was me before, but this is like the future me, a time travel man, refly noodle, and I'm gonna play for you a. It's not really a metal song. It's kind of post punk, kind of art punk. It's every really punk. It's it's a punk. And um, these guys are called Blue Shorts. There's B-L-U with a umlaut. There's two dots over the U and no E in blue. Uh, they're from here in Calgary. Uh, I don't play a lot of Calgary bands because there are not many I like. Uh, I like Wake. They're really cool. Really cool guys. Um, I like... Uh, New, new, I, I sometimes like Numenorian. They they brought an album out that was kind of, kind of weird production. I wasn't really feeling, but uh, I like them live, really good live. Um, let me see, who do I ask, like? Uh, who else do I like? Uh, Chieftain. Again, really cool dudes. Uh, good kind of like post metal band. Um, see uh, the Weir. They're also good, another kind of post metally kind of almost black gazy kind of band. Um, let me see, there's, uh, who do I like? Who do I like in Calgary? That's it. There's, what, four bands, five? And uh, Blue Shorts. And there's a southern one band I, I kind of like. Who else do I like? Oh yeah, I like uh, Dry Heave. Try who cool as hell. And I think they share a member with uh, Blue Shorts. Um, yeah, check them out as well. And the bands I just mentioned. But uh, Blue Shorts, really good uh, post punk kind of thing. This is off their album Blue Wave Music. I don't know if that's on a record label, but it doesn't matter because you can just Google stuff now. Uh, it's on Bandcamp. There's cassettes. Um, you could probably go to like Sloth Records or Luke's to get them if you're in Calgary. 
Uh, if you're not, then order them or just Bandcamp, you know, it's all good. And uh, yeah, this is uh, going to be a song called Blunt Boulevard, you know, blunts, drugs are cool, I guess, drugs are so cool. Um, Blunt Boulevard by Blue Shorts, listen to them, I'll be back next week. And I'm going to be reading a book called Call Me Zebra. And I'm going to call, I'm going to say zebra, I'm not going to say zebra. Because, you know, fuck this whole continent, fuck this whole landmass. Hemisphere. You know, the Western Hemisphere can eat a dick. And I'm not going to use its pronunciations of um, African horse mammals. Uh, Yeah, so see you next week. Blue shorts.